0: have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 2 of the Black Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, there are those who, when asked if they have any regrets in their life, state that they have none. They have none because they, the choices that they made have led them to where they are And have made them who they are. Whereas that is true, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't regret the regrettable choices. If you're anything like me, the older that you get, the more and more you wish you could relive portions of your life. Of course, we know that that's not possible, but if we could, we might. If I knew then what I know now, I would have made different choices. Maybe you can relate with that. If we could know the consequences of our choices, how might different, how different might our choices have been? How might how different might our choices be? Well, this morning we will see the choices of our first parents. Choices that carried greater consequences to themselves and others than they even knew. In Genesis chapter 2, we read a description of the creation of the garden. The garden in Eden. The garden of God. The place of paradise. We see a, a perfect environment. We saw the, the perfect marriage with God the perfect god in chapter 2 we see that all was right in the world it was an idyllic place it was a place of peace and yet that peace or that shalom would not last as we look at chapter 3 we describe we will see described what we commonly call the fall That is when mankind fell into sin and fell out of union with God. It was a terrible day, to put it mildly. The consequences of which you and I feel today, even as we sit here this morning, we feel the consequences of the fall. Chapter three of Genesis describes for us why the world is the way it is. Why the world isn't the way we wish it was. Why the world isn't as it one day will be. And we see that it all began with temptation. Look at verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, chapter 3 does not tell us who the serpent is here in verse 1. But on the whole of Scripture, we come to learn that the serpent is, in fact, Satan. It is the devil. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 says, And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The Bible is clear about who Satan is and that Satan is, in fact, the serpent here. Satan, that word, that name means adversary. The devil, that word means slanderer. Throughout the, 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 the Bible, we learn much about Satan. We find out that he is a fallen angel. The prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel both reference that. We find out that he's called a dragon. We just read that in the book of Revelation. He's called a lion in First Peter chapter 5. He's called the destroyer. In Revelation nine eleven, the father of lies in John eight, the evil one in Matthew thirteen, the prince of this world, John twelve, the God of this age, Second Corinthians four four, the ruler of the world system, Ephesians 2, two, the leader of demonic forces, Ephesians six, and the accuser of the brethren, Revelation twelve ten. What we come to find out about Satan is that Satan hates God and he hates the bearers of God's image. That means you and that means me. From the beginning, Satan sought to kill and to destroy. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes to kill and destroy, but I have come to give life. This thief is none other than Satan. This serpent is none other than Satan. And he seeks to destroy and to kill. And he does so through temptation. Warren Wearsby writes that a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. An opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. So getting an A on a, on a test is a good thing cheating to do that is a bad thing, Did I need to tell you that? Speaking to the front rows here. All right. Very good. Saving money for your future is a good thing. Retirement is a good thing. Stealing other people's money to do so is a bad thing. Speaking to the rest of the pews here now. Truly, though, the gift of physical relations within marriage is a good thing, meant to be practiced within the bond of marriage. Participated outside of the bond of marriage is a bad thing. A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Satan's temptation is, and always is, to get what you want without the difficulty or the consequence or the boundaries it requires. And yet, as we will see, as one writer puts it, sins seductively promise, let me try that again, sins seductive promises always turn out to be a mirage. They always turn out to be an illusion. They're not true. It's fake. We can note here, In Genesis 1, in the first verses, three things about the strategy of Satan's temptation. We can see how he does what he does. And the first comes here in this verse that we just read. Satan comes, not as you might expect him to come, but he comes disguised as a serpent. Verse 1 calls him crafty, which isn't necessarily evil. It means to be shrewd, which isn't always wrong. But what Satan is doing is he's trying to disguise himself. He's not coming in a way that, that you might, or Eve might have understood him to be a threat. After all, there were no threats in the garden. So here, here a, a serpent coming to Eve was not alarming. Here, a serpent coming to Eve, speaking to her was not alarming Now, that would be alarming for you and me on multiple levels. But here in in the garden pre-fall, this apparently was not alarming for whatever reasons. What we can know about Satan is that Satan traffics in deception and in fraud. He doesn't show who he really is. He presents as an angel of light. He works in counterfeits. False preachers and false gospels and false righteousness and false disciples and false hope. Satan always disguises what he's really up to. Secondly, in the rest of verse one, we see that Satan does this through deception. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You can kind of hear the, the suspicious tone. That Satan uses here as he attacks God's word. What does he say? Did God actually say, did God actually say, you may not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, you remember that it was by the word of God that creation came to be. The very word of God spoke creation into being. And now here, Satan is casting doubt on God's word. And he does so by distorting his word. This is deception. He says something that, that God didn't say. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? That is not what God said. We'll look more about that in a moment. But what is, what is Satan doing? He's targeting Eve's thoughts. He's targeting her mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 tells us just that. Satan was sowing seeds of confusion into Eve's thinking. And he's doing this by questioning God. By questioning God's word. And by questioning God's word, he's questioning his his character. And questioning his goodness. Satan, says Robert Johnston, Satan introduced the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. God's word is not subject to our judgments. We do not stand over God's word. God's word stands over us. And here, Satan deceitfully opens this door to Eve to say, is that really right? Is that really? Is that really what God said? Is that really his word? When we question God's word, this is going to sound mean, but when we... Question God's word, we are engaging in the work of Satan. Yet Eve was moved further along in the temptation as she responded. And she actually joined Satan here. As Satan revises God's words, now Eve does the same. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not what God said. That is not what God said. You have your Bible. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day... For in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve does three things here three lamentable, regrettable things. First, she omits the word every. You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, um, of, of every tree. He, he, the, the point here is that what what Eve is doing is she is diminishing God's God's permission that the God had given them the freedom to eat of the trees in verse 16 you may surely eat of every tree in the garden chapter 2 verse 16 that's what God said there's great permission there's great freedom and she is minimizing that provision in order to make it sound worse than it is. Secondly, she's adding to God's command with the phrase, neither shall you touch it. God never said anything about touching the tree. Here she's making this sound unreasonable, this prohibition. And we ought to be very careful. And the Bible is clear about this in places like Deuteronomy chapter four, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 30, and Revelation chapter 22, about adding to the word of God. We need to know what the word of God is says and say what the word of God says. Nothing more and nothing less. And thirdly, she changed God's command. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does she say in chapter 3, verse 3? Lest you die. Now that might seem negligible to you and me. That might not seem like much of a change at all but it's not what he said. She's softening God's word. She's removing the certainty of death. God's command was clear. Eating the forbidden fruit, disobeying his command would bring inevitable death. And there was no doubt, no doubt, that Satan was not done. After he disguised himself, after he sought to deceive, now he just goes straight for the denial in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. We see here Satan kind of seizing on Eve's doubts. He leads her into it. She joins him in in minimizing God's word and now Satan goes right for it and directly contradicts God's word directly says something that's not true. Not only did God say that you would die. Now the serpent is saying you will not die. This is a blatant contrast regarding what divine judgments. What would Satan love? What what more would Satan love than for people to disbelieve in divine judgment? To not believe that there's actually a hell. To not believe that there's a consequence for our sin. To not believe that there's a righteous judge who will judge all things. The disbelief in hell is satanic. Satan does not want you to believe that you will die. Satan does not want you to believe that there will be a consequence for your sin. Of course he doesn't. And that's what he's telling Eve right here. Not only did Eve deny, excuse me, not only did Satan deny God's word, but he also attacked his goodness and he attacked his, his character. When he said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he saying? He's saying, God's keeping something from you. God's keeping the good stuff from you. He's manipulating you. He's trying to scare you into not doing what he wants you to to do. God's out to control you. Now, on this side of the story, we can read all that and see it so clearly, right? Like, Eve, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's lying to you. What are you doing? That's deception. What are you doing? That's Satan. How how do you not see it, Eve? How do you not see what's happening to you? Of course he's lying to you. Of course he doesn't care about you. Of course he's leading you to death. That's his destination too. But Eve didn't see it. And guess what? We don't always see it either. It tells us something about our condition. And This is all the more reason to put on the armor of God. All the more reason, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, to bring every thought into captivity, to know God's word, which keeps us from sin. Psalm 119, verse 11. Here's the reality. We all believe something. All of us believe something. Nobody believes nothing. We all believe something. And so the question is, is the something that we're believing the truth? Or are you believing a lie? Are you being tempted to believe something about God that goes against what God has clearly said? Does what you believe line up with God's word? Well, Satan had tempted Eve. In verses six and seven, we find out what she does next. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Here we see the tragedy, the fall, Eve yielding to Satan's temptation. And we see it in a, a three step process. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Secondly, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And finally, she took its fruit and ate it. She saw it, she desired it, and she took it. That's what yielding to temptation looks like seeing, desiring, and taking. She believed the lie, she was deceived. She believed the promise of Satan over the promise of God. And Eve's not alone. We see this pattern throughout the Bible. In fact, a few books later, in the book of Joshua, there's a man named Achan. And if we were to look at chapter 7 of Joshua, we would see the same three things. That he saw what he wanted, he desired it, and he took it. That's how temptation takes root in our life. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but from the world. What are the three temptations there? They're the same three temptations that Eve faced. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Satan Satan isn't creative. These are the same temptations from the garden. The same temptations that you face were faced by Eve in the garden. Kent Hughes says, Sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and God's goodness. When we begin to doubt, that's where sin takes hold in our life. Well, not only did she eat, but then we see that she gave some to Adam, and he ate too. One of the questions and mysteries of this text is where was Adam? Where was Adam when this was happening? Eve is being tempted. The serpent is talking. Where is Adam? Well, if you look at the end of verse six, it says, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was with her. Where was Adam? Adam was with her. Now, some might say, Well, that's in verse six. That doesn't mean he was with her in verses 1 through 5. Maybe he came after the temptation. He showed up and she gave some to him. Fair enough. When Satan is addressing Eve, he uses the the pronoun you. And the pronoun you there is plural. He was talking to both of them. It is right for us to believe that Adam was present as Eve was being tempted. And yet he was silent. He was passive. He went along with it. He let it happen. He was culpable for the whole thing. And not only did he just let it happen, but after seeing Eve eat and not die immediately, what did he do? He ate too. He joined her in the rebellion. Now, the Bible is clear that Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. Adam did what he did intentionally, willfully, and we find without hesitation, he went along with it. We ought to note here that the sin was not simply eating a piece of forbidden fruits. If that's all we get out of this. No, the sin was rebellion against God. The sin was the created Saying to the creator, I'm going to do something different than you said. It's a distrust of God and his word. It's ingratitude for God and his gifts. It's love for self over love for God. Well, as Adam ate, we find that their eyes were indeed opened. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Satan had told them, your eyes will be open. It's a half truth. Their eyes were open, but they were open to their loss of innocence. And they saw what? They saw that they were naked. In chapter 2, verse 25, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. Now here we find that they are naked and ashamed. So ashamed that they try to clothe themselves. They try to hide themselves with fig leaves and making for themselves a loin cloth. In an attempt to cover their shame, they make for themselves these clothings. But we know that no covering, no covering can absolve our shame. Sin brings shame. You know it. I know it. We've experienced that shame, and as our guilty consciences accuse us, that is meant for us then to repent. The guilt we feel over our sin is meant to lead us to repentance. And our lack of repenting only sears our conscience so that we no longer feel any guilt. We feel no conviction. Warren Wearsby writes, when people are no longer ashamed of their sins, their character is gone. Gone. Sin not only brings shame, but leads to fear. As we continue into verses 8 through 13, we see this confrontation. Look at 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Here in chapter 3, we can see several of the, the effects of sin, the internal effects of sin. This perfect union with God has been broken, and in place of it comes shame and guilt, fear and hostility. We learn that sin separates. Sin breaks relationships. It breaks relationships with one another, and it breaks our relationship with God. It causes division. It destroys the desire for fellowship with God. In the place of freedom and union now is fear and division. And we see this division as Adam and Eve do something. They hide from God. So God comes to them and what do they do? They hide. The scripture says that God comes walking. Now God is a spirit. God does not have legs. So this is... This is an anthropomorphic um, way of saying he's with them. It's a way that you and I would understand it. It's using a human terminology for a spiritual reality or a spiritual thing giving us a human idea. So he walked with them. He communed with them. Whatever that means, it means that he was with them. It describes the relationship that God had had with man, how they walked together. And so as God comes to them instead of walking with God what do they they hide from God Sin not only separates sin also makes us stupid Right we can't hide from the presence of God you can't hide from the presence of God You hide from people you hide from church you hide from your bible you can't hide from the presence of God God sees all things ask Jonah about that God sees all things And God knows where they're at. The delusion of sin is to think that somehow we can hide from God. Well, Adam and Eve did not come to God. As God came to them, he came to seek them out. We find this about sin, that no one seeks God. Because of our sin, Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God. And here we see Adam and Eve not seeking God. God has come to them and they don't seek him. Here's the good news. God has come again to you. He has come again to us through Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, it says that Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A result of sin is that we try to hide. A result of the sin is that we try to separate ourselves from our guilt. Verse 9 says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now there's a lot of things we can say here. The first is that who does, who does God call? He calls the man. He doesn't call for Eve. He calls for the man, which tells us the man is responsible, that God is holding Adam responsible for his family. Men, God holds you responsible for your family. That is still true today. In the New Testament, the husband is the head of the wife, the head of the family. You have responsibility before God. God calls for Adam. Adam is responsible. Yes, Eve sinned. Yes, God will deal with Eve, but God is calling to Adam. The question is, where are you? God isn't, this isn't a mystery to God. God isn't unsure of where Adam and Eve are. This is a gentle, gracious invitation to repent. Come to me. Where are you? Where are you? This was a a creature in rebellion and God had every right in the world to, to righteously judge Adam and Eve in a moment. But that's not what God did. God, who we find out is, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, gives grace. And he's giving grace here to Adam and Eve by calling for them to listen to him, to come to him. What we find here, as Adam and Eve have done this, is a, rev- a reversal of God's created order. Right? We had God, man, woman, animals. That's the created order. The fall Changed all of that. One writer says it this way the woman listened to the serpent, the man listened to the woman, and no one listened to God. It's a complete reversal of the created order. He's graciously calling them, though. The dialogue continues in verse 10. And he said, I hear the sound of you. This is Adam. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam here is expressing a new reality of his relationship with God. He's now afraid of God. He's now guilty before God. He's now ashamed. He's now alienated from God. Fear now has entered into their relationship. And God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? If there were never any clothes before, how would you even know that you were naked to begin with? What is naked when there are no clothes? Who told you you were naked? And the follow-up question is, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Spoiler alert, God already knew they ate of the tree. But here's another opportunity. It's another opportunity for them to repent. It's another opportunity for them to confess, yes, I did, forgive me. But instead, Adam and Eve further demonstrate how sin had already affected them. How it had already warped their mind. How it had already caused division between them and God, and them and each other. And we see it in verses twelve and thirteen. And the man said to the woman, who, "Excuse me." The man said, "The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it." Verse thirteen. And then the Lord God said to the to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate it." This is blame shifting. This is a result of the fall. Why do you blame shifts? Because you don't want to take responsibility. Why do I blame shift? Because I don't want the consequences of what I've done. That's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing. Adam goes first and takes no responsibility. And more than that, he throws his wife under the bus. It's her fault. But it's not only just her fault. It's the woman whom you gave me. So it's actually a God problem. So Adam is in a sense sense saying, if God wouldn't have done it that way, I wouldn't be where I am. Now that sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? That sounds crazy. Who would ever say something like that? Who would ever blame someone else for their choices? Have you ever said, that person makes me so angry? They make you angry? Did they do that? They just got in there and made you angry, huh? No, you made you angry. How many times have we justified our actions? Well, they did it first. When your siblings and fighting, right? And the brother hits the one brother, the other brother hits the back. Why would you do He did it first. As though that's justification. That's a blame shift. It's shifting the blame from me to you. We do this with God also. As crazy it is to think that Adam said, it's your fault, God. How many times have you heard someone say, or even thought yourself, well, this is the way I am. This is just my personality. This is how I was made. This is what I am. I didn't choose it. God just made me this way. Listen, God is not on the hook for your fallen condition. He's not. We we don't get to blame God for our sins. We choose those sins. We choose. In our fallen condition, we cannot blame God. Those are excuses. They're futile and they're worthless and they're selfish. Turn your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you're in the Pew Bible, that's page 1011. We need to go quick here. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We don't get to blame anybody else for our sins. We are fully responsible for all our sins. If we learn anything from Adam and Eve, we learn this that temptation is real. The work of Satan has not stopped from the garden. Satan is still active today, and we better pay attention. C.S. Lewis wrote in a book called The Screwtape Letters, he writes this The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. It's been said that Satan first comes as a serpent, and if that doesn't work, he comes as a lion. Pay attention. Do you know your weakness? Do you know where you are the weakest, the most vulnerable? You ought to ask yourself periodically if I were Satan, how would I tempt me? Do you know your weakness? We all have it. Don't think you don't. Don't be too prideful to think that there's not an area that Satan would love to get a foothold in my life and destroy me. You have it. I have it. Do you know it? If you don't know it, it's gonna be hard to guard against it. Temptation is real, and life is choices. Life is choices. We are not robots, we make choices every day, and those choices carry consequences. And we're gonna find out more of the consequences next week as God doles out judgment. But don't doubt that sin carries consequence. Don't doubt. That the sin we do will not be judged. You may get away with it now. You may get away with it for a while, but the consequences come. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But they will come. And third, God provides. Pretty heavy, temptation, Satan. There's a lot, a lot of weight to all of this. Here's the good news that God provides. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. Which means you're not experiencing anything new. You're not experiencing anything new. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way of escape. That's what we're seeing. God provides it. It might be running out of the house like Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It might be enduring unjust treatment like the apostles and Jesus. But there is a way of escape. There is a way to to, to go about it and God will give you the grace, and the ability to endure it. And the most greatest or the greatest provision that God has given to us came through his son. No no temptation. Uh, We've not undertaken any temptation Temptation that's not common to man. Meaning, this is not new. Even Christ himself, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Which means you might say, well, man, my temptations are, are really rough. Like I got a bad. Like you don't know. You don't know what I got to deal with. No, I might not know what you have to deal with. That might be absolutely true. But there is one who does. We have a great high priest. We have a a perfect savior who actually did endure the the temptation. He actually does know what it's like. And he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly in order that he could pay for our imperfections, our failures. He took our cross. He took our sin on the cross as the lamb of God. For our sake, he, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In the place of the first Adam, who only brought sin and death, the second Adam, Christ, has come to bring righteousness, justification, and life. In the place of death, Jesus brought life. He brought abundant life. Life with him. Union with the Father. Through the power of the Spirit, who now enables us to resist temptation. We don't have to say yes to temptation. Enabled by the Spirit of God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can say no to Satan. You're not greater than Satan. But the one who is in you is greater than Satan. You have the capacity given by God to resist temptation today. Will it be hard? Of course it's hard. Is Satan crafty? Yes. Does he seek to deceive? Yes. Yes. Is he going to deny what God has said? Yes. But if you can see that now, if you can see it now, see it now, Satan is not going to come with a pitchfork and horns. That's not how he comes. He comes as an angel of light. He doesn't come immediately and deny all of the scriptures, but he deceives. And if that doesn't work, he goes full throat. Yes, and denies the whole thing. May God help us to be faithful to him today, to resist temptation empowered by the spirit. You can for the glory of God and for your own good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have today in Christ. Without Christ, we would be, well, without hope. And so, Father, we give thanks today. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Without him, we don't have salvation. Without him, we don't have the Spirit. Without him, we don't have the capacity to say no. We don't have the discernment to see spiritual things. The natural man does not discern the things of the Spirit. At least the Spirit discerns the things that are spiritual. So God, as we understand the spiritual battle that lies ahead of us today, would you give us eyes to see, eyes to to understand. Guard us from temptation. Lead us not into the into temptation today give us discernment give us faith help us to put on the whole armor of god that we may be, we be guarded against the tricks of the devil in order that we might walk faithfully in order that we might honor you be a testimony to you that you would receive the glory in all things let me pray it now in jesus name amen